Welcome to What Would Danbury Do? Your guide to Julia Quinn's Bridgerton series from A to V. You are the bane of my existence and the object of all my desires. I mean, at this point, what else needs to be said? Don't forget you can find us on Facebook and Twitter as at Bridgerton Pod and Instagram as at WWDDPod. And we'd love for you to tweet us using the hashtag WWDDPod. She thumps a cane and drinks champagne She's formidable and judgmental But we can guarantee That she's a quintessential Lady D But recognizes great potential What would Danbury do? Hi, I'm Kate And I'm Adele And today we are joined by a special guest host Guest host, can you please introduce yourself And tell us about your relationship with Bridgerton Or the romance genre? Hello, everyone. I'm Noi Hassel, and I call myself a cultural storyteller. I do writing, work, and research on cultural identity and how it's represented. I host a couple of podcasts, Why Write, which is all about writing, and Like Us, which I do with two other amazing women, which is a fun look at microaggressions, which I know doesn't sound fun. But I'm personally right now um, recording on the unceded lands of the Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation here in Bayside, Melbourne. I'm a woman who is Jewish, Japanese, Belarusian, Lithuanian, American, and Australian. And my relationship to all of this is that while I haven't read the novels, I am a big fan of a bit of romance genre, particularly of this era. And I'm a massive fan of this series. I have watched it both seasons numerous times. And thanks to you lovely humans, I have watched this episode a gazillion times, an embarrassing number of times. So thank you so much for having me. We're delighted to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. (laughs) So as we discussed in our last episode, we have moved from a scene-by-scene chronological discussion to more story-based discussions because so much is happening in this season that it's absolutely impossible to keep track of who is doing what at any given time. So just like we did last episode, this episode, we're going to break things down into the major storylines, talk about them one at a time, and really dig into what is happening, what our favorite characters are doing, the things that we love, the things that make us a little bit itchy, and what we have hope for in the future. So there's two separate storylines that play a very, very small point, but sort of move some of our secondary characters forward a little bit. I want to talk first about, I've put it in my notes as brothers finding purpose. (laughs) So we have Benedict and Colin struggling a little bit, I think, Mm. in the wake of Anthony taking those first steps as, you know, really solidifying himself as the Viscount, getting married finding an heir, all of those things that are going to give his life meaning. And now we have Benedict and Colin, of course, who are now questioning what's going to give their lives meaning. Hmm. Well, where do we start? There's a lot to say about Benedict on so many levels. Charming on one hand and funny in the family context. But mm, there's so much. I mean, I find him very funny when he's dealing with family and super annoying when he's in his art college. You know, I mean, that whole issue with him and those models and, oh, how surprised he is that they can do anything other than pose. And then all he does is just prove that that's all he thinks that they're good for in the end anyway. I mean. It's like he doesn't have super capable sisters or something. Yes. Like like he says when he's sitting there with Eloise, "Mm, 
super smart. I think we're overcounting. I don't know. He seems he needs to look in the mirror and have a really good hard look at himself. I mean, to be fair to us, we also got a good hard look at Benedict this episode <laughs> as well. Well phrased. Well, if only we did. If only we did. <laughs> Look, of course there was a naked lady in the room. Oh. The first thing I think of when I think of Benedict in this episode is boobs. And I hadn't thought about that division of his home life versus his public life. And it's a really good distinction to make. They're just sculling in the water until it's time for a storyline, which looks like it's getting further and further back in the series progression. <laughs> I do wonder if perhaps putting Benedict and did we ever learn the the model's name? <gasps> Good point. I don't think we did. I don't think we did. Oh, that's even worse. So we have our nameless model who is doing what she needs to do to get what she needs. Mm -hmm. But I do wonder, the cynical part of myself says, oh, they've put this storyline in because they haven't been able to get Anthony and Kate naked yet. And the viewers are expecting a certain level of sexuality. Obviously, the primary storyline isn't going to give that. So let's get these secondary characters naked and give the viewers what they want, as opposed to putting any real thought Mm -hmm. behind why they might be doing this, what it might be saying. I mean, there, there's so much that could be said at the moment about art school, about the fact that women weren't allowed to be artists, even though they had been part of the founding members of the academy, you know, the role that women play in arts. Or the fact that she's trying to learn. Yeah. You know, she, and she's super clever, obviously, in the way that she's manipulating the system that just, so she can get in and get an education. I thought that was amazing. That story was amazing. And I think there's also something to be said as well, but the fact that this idea of like, drawing the female nude is held up as an example of high art when in reality it was mostly just men continuing to like boobs very much and by framing it as art they were basically allowed to just look at boobs as often as they wanted or basically have sex with the models it certainly did not necessarily look as if there was a lot of protection set up against that kind of expectation oh Adele you did find her name it's Tessa. How did Tessa. you find it? Was it, it was? I had to look it up on IMDb. <laughs> oh, right. All right. And that, um, that actress has such an amazing face. Um, yeah. But I think um, it's interesting an episode where Eloise is trying to stretch her brain, maybe, <laughs> and try to be a bit more smart that this woman has been really ingenious in how she's gotten around a lot of structures that have been created to keep her out. So, I mean, in some ways, there was a lot more character development for this woman who he couldn't remember the name of, or maybe was her name wasn't even mentioned, than some of the main cast this season so far. Yeah, I, I mean, I also think that Colin, who is also very underwhelming as a character, in this episode, basically bumbled around saying, oh, maybe I'll get into some finance because everybody else is. Basically, his role in this this episode was sort of, oh, I might do this because I'm just feeding ducks otherwise. Well, that's a good choice, isn't it? Ducks or investment. And it wasn't even a duck. It was a swan. But we'll get to that. Um. (laughs) Well, I mean, let's talk about Colin now because it's exact contrast from last episode where Benedict was complaining to Colin about how he felt rudderless because Anthony had the Viscount position. Colin had had his travels and Benedict had just sort of been floating around, not doing very much. So Colin had already been set up as somebody who has found a little bit of purpose, or at least has had some adventures outside of the expected. So for Colin to now also feel as if he doesn't have anything to do 
is interesting because it hasn't been framed as such thus far. This sort of sounds whingy because this is what we love about these shows, right? But it sort of frames the entire thing like this is a bunch of guys who have nothing to do but roll around and look beautiful and maybe go to a dance and find someone pretty to marry. And I, you know, that's kind of the basic truth of what it is we're watching and what we're loving about it. So it seems petty for me to complain about that being the trope that is being set up. But I kind of think for your next romantic hero, you want there to be some gravitas or some grit or something that's going to make me go, yes, yes, get on that stallion, Colin. Go grab your bride. <laughs> and I can't see it. Well, also the fact that like Bridgerton men apparently don't start being proactive in their life until a woman comes around that they're attracted to. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing, like just from reading a lot of historical romance, particularly of Regency this period, the second, third, whatever sons would either go into the church or they would enlist or they could even, you know, help with the country manor. And they're not choosing to do any of that because they don't have to. <laughs> um, there's a lot of privilege. I think it speaks to the immense wealth that the Bridgertons have, that they don't have to go out and find a way of earning their own living, that they're so capable of literally just faffing about until they find their true purpose. Or as you mentioned in romance novels, their one true love to give them some kind of purpose to go forward. Let's flip over because I think that we have exactly the opposite happening with the secondary character women in this episode, because we have Eloise who is engaging in radical thought and reading radical pamphlets and heading off to Bloomsbury to hear radical speakers. Um, I did do a tiny little bit of research because I really thought that that might be a historical anachronism, but it turns out that Bloomsbury has actually been a hotbed of thought for quite some time. It didn't exist exactly per se at that time, but it was the home of the University of London. It was the home of the British Museum. So all of that is okay. We can continue to talk about this. She is allowed to go to Bloomsbury in order to hear radical speakers. <laughs> I can't believe how comfortable she was just waltzing in there into that scenario where she didn't know anyone other than Theo, wasn't invited, and it was a completely different class in a completely different aspect of the city she's grown up in. She would have been scared shitless, yeah? I mean, I don't think that she is. And I think this is the fundamental thing about Eloise is she has literally no idea what the consequences could possibly be. She's grown up in this bubble of immense wealth. Everybody has coddled her and nobody has tried to rein her in, even her mother who tried to set her up with a radical thinker at the ball last episode. She has no real clear idea of what the consequences could be. You know, she's always belonged in every room she's ever walked into. Why would she think that this room would be any different? Mm -hmm. um, I will say just to like, continue my little research rabbit hole that I went down. I looked up how far away it is between Mayfair and Bloomsbury and it's just under two miles. So I feel like the distance that maybe Theo is talking about is metaphoric as opposed to actual <laughs> physical distance. When he's complaining, it's oh, it a bit far for you to come. <laughs> yes, two miles. Theo's not that far. It's not that far. You can get here. Look, I like her. I like her a lot as a character. She's actually my favorite one of them all. She reminds, is it Downton Abbey where there's that other woman? Yeah. I mean, so that storyline is sort of, you know, ringing those bells and, you know, all of the things. And, you know, I, I really like the, the thing that 
gets me a little bit. And I, and I take that point about how she holds her own in those space, spaces and it could it be an arrogance or a naivety, I'm not sure. The other thing that strikes me a little bit about that is that whole class issue for her, like how much is she sort of playing around in it? Because either is she, I don't think she is that naive. I think there's something about it in there that she is having a, a dalliance in that area and she finds it maybe conceptually romantic to be playing around in the slums, so to speak, or maybe intellectually romantic to be playing around in that. And there's something a little bit icky about that intellectually that feels a bit awkward. That sort of felt a bit funny to me as she, because I, I do like her. It's almost like she's slumming it for an adventure as opposed to actually trying to engage deeply with what people who don't exist in her world are actually dealing with. Yes. So she goes there. And at first I'm thinking, you go, girl, you get into this. You start really feeling this, you know, these thought processes and get into the politics of, but she just doesn't, right? So she kind of steps her foot in there and then all of a sudden it's a flirtation or it's a dressing down or what? what is it? We don't know really. Like it's sort of half in, half out. So it does feel like she's slumming it, like she's playing around a little bit. And so something in the disingenuousness of that sort of feels a bit, ick, you know? It's a bit like if you looked at a contemporary person today and saw that they just retweeted or like occasionally tweeted something about a progressive issue and felt that that was enough kind of thing. She's not listening. She's talking a lot, but she hasn't done the work. Yes, she bought the T-shirt. And she went to the protest for the photo opportunity. <laughs> Are we talking about this? This is scathing. Yeah, I, like, about- I do like her too, but wow. <laughs> We've just cancelled her. <laughs> All right, so I, I want to use Penn as a bridging character right here because Penn has her own story. Ooh. But... She is 100% stalking Eloise throughout the course of this episode. I am not sure what I think, because on the one hand, it could be read as Penelope understands more about the world than Eloise does, and she's trying to protect Eloise, or at least trying to run some interference on the danger that Eloise is putting herself into. On a less generous read, it could be that Penelope is more interested in protecting her own identity as Lady Whistledown and that her care for Eloise is quite secondary to her care for her secret identity. And I'm not sure where I fall on that spectrum. I mean, obviously people are nuanced. It could be both, but Penelope has not been a particularly nuanced character this season. So I'm, I feel like it would really be one or the other. And I'm really interested to hear what you think. I actually wrote down two options as well, but one of them was a different one. So she's stalking Eloise to Bloomsbury and I wrote, is she worried about being caught or is it jealousy? I'm with you. Because Eloise is definitely shutting her out right now. She's She knows she's lying to her. She's avoiding her. She's standing her up. Like, mm-hmm. is this a mm-hmm. bit of Pen- Penelise? <laughs> Penelise, I love it. Yes. Interesting. You don't think so, Kate? Because I'm so with you, Adele. I think I'm so into that. Like, that's what I wrote down. I thought, why is she so jealous? Is it jealous because Eloise isn't spending time with her? Yeah, absolutely. Or do you think it might be jealousy because Penelope is allowed to have a secret life, but Eloise is not? I think it's almost one and the same. I think they are too. Yeah. Right. Interesting. 
Yeah, and I think it's a bit nasty. I but we also know you can be really possessive over your girlfriends, like that thing in primary school where you can only have one best friend and if there's three of you it gets weird and really your first best friend is almost like your first love. It's very, very intense, particularly in women. I don't want to speak to a male experience, but it's very, very intense. So you could read it romantically and you can read it just as friend jealousy, which is very valid as well. But I also think there's another thing in play right now is Penn's realized she's not the smartest person in the room when she's dealing with Genevieve. So she's getting shut out by Eloise, who's not telling her everything, and that's something Penn takes pride in is knowing what's going on. And then she's dealing with Genevieve on this other side who's playing her like a violin. Interesting. So she's a bit destabilised in this episode if you think about it. I also think that Penn is not a nice, nice, nice girl. Like, I think there's a little bit in this that sort of says to us that there's a little bit more under that surface there. And this is showing us, you know, there's some of that, that look on her face when on that cut, when she saw Eloise was nasty. Like I was just like, oh, wouldn't want to cross her in that dark alleyway in Bloomsbury. Like, you know, she, it was just like, yeah, it's there, there is, it's not all goodness and light coming out of that pen, you know, and there's a lot of, which we also saw last season, a lot of self-serving interests in what she does. So, yeah, I, I think that's uh, there's a lot of jealousy in that. Well, you brought up Genevieve, so let's switch over to there because obviously Penelope and Genevieve's system is working out quite well. I actually wrote down a quote of this because I really loved when Genevieve said, why shouldn't a woman's ambition be limitless? Which I just thought was... I feel like that flicked a switch in Penelope almost like she had created this alter ego. She was making money for herself. She was pulling one over on not only the ton who have treated her very poorly, but also her own family who have also dismissed her. And for Genevieve to say, well, why would you stop there? I feel like, we're going to see some more from Penelope that plays into that idea that ambition can be a good thing. It doesn't have to reach a ceiling. You can be limitlessly ambitious as well. And I think the mirroring of both Penn and Eloise finding out that someone quite below them in class can be as smart or smarter than them and have a a more realistic or a broader worldview is an interesting thing because they they're very sheltered young women I mean this is the growth that's going to happen until they get their own storylines I guess and I think it's so interesting particularly when we contrast it with Benedict's relationship with somebody from a different class where Eloise and Penelope are obviously seeing the benefit of that their worldview is starting to expand they're starting to understand that they might move in these rarefied circles but that doesn't give them a lock on intelligence on ambition on entrepreneurship whereas benedict's relationship with tessa doesn't have that nuance to it it's like it might look like equality because he strips down too but there's certainly no world view changing behavior that's happening there as well i mean he's reaping benefits they're just the friends with benefits (laughs) but i mean tessa because tessa says to him it's the only way that women are allowed to create art 
but I don't think that's why he strips down necessarily. Mm. And like, I don't no, think it's like it's full play. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's not saying you're right. We should fight this. Oh, we should like, change I'm with this. You. I'm, yeah, I'm with you. Let me be be your model. Let me be your muse. No. <laughs> no, he's just like, I know I look good with a shirt off. So that's going to happen right now. We need some sex in this show. Let me sex it up for you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. All right. So in Genevieve's shop, we see the Featheringtons buying Prudence's um, trousseau. No silk, unfortunately, because they are still broke as anything. <laughs> but last episode, we talked about how it must be so disappointing for Portia to have all of this amazing cunning and scheming ability and to not have that replicate itself in her daughters. But I feel like she might have met her scheming match in Lord Featherington. And I feel like much like Eloise and Penelope have underestimated people of different classes, Portia has really underestimated the scheming ability of Lord Featherington as well. Yes, but still, she is the brain. Like, she is the one who comes up with the scheme. I mean, he's kind of her puppet in that. She is a genius, I have to say. I'm all hats off to that woman. I think that she is a misunderstood genius. She is a hero to me. If I, under pressure, with all the things that are going on around me, with all that color and light and movement in my world, could come up with something like that, bang, I'm all for it. She is, she's brilliant. But would you want her as your mother? Oh my God, no. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't want her as my enemy. But it's so interesting. She has the intellectual smarts on him, but he has all the like societal power and they both have great repartee. So it's enjoyable-ish. <laughs> Ish. Ish. I wrote down in my notes that they're the true enemies to lovers game of this season. So true. Well, there's respect there. He respects there her cunning. And I don't know if that's ever happened to her from a man before. I forgot what her maid is called, but definitely respects her cunning but you know to have someone see that in her and value it I think is quite attractive to her plus she really deserves it let's be honest like she genuinely deserves a good hot love story yeah Uh, her maid's name is Varley and I mean up until this point Varley has been her sidekick Mm. but I feel like Lord Featherington is moving into that space especially when she manages to pull off the ruby scam which is an ingenious plan. Brilliant. I don't, it's never going to end well, but. Um. <laughs> That's not the point. The fact that she carries it off and thinks of it. Genius. Genius. I think her plans always have a short term win though. Like her plans don't necessarily have the long, the uh, thinking down the field. <laughs> um, she's always like, I just got to survive this next bit and then we'll leapfrog to the next one. And she has confidence in her ability to do that. And I, as do I. Yeah, she's a true survivor, right? You just, I would actually put all my money in her corner knowing that she's a true survivor. She will get there and she's going to be the one who survives the longest. Um, was anyone else shocked to see Brooks turn up again twice in this episode? Uh, I had forgotten he, he appears, the jeweler who likes cake. Um, and I'm like, this is genius that they've used him twice. <laughs> Um, I, this is skipping a little bit ahead to our other storyline, but whom's among us does not like a good lemon cake? Yes. That is the question I have for you. And why would you ever say no? I mean, the fact that Portia also said no to him and the way she said no to him next time. I, I just love that. I just love that. <laughs> She's very managing and I like that about her. But I thought it was interesting because they set Brooks up in the original scene as 
you know, the best jeweler in London. Like, why would Antony not use a really good jeweler? And then he shows up at Portia's place, is looking at this necklace, and is like, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. So he's 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 not only a very good jeweler who likes lemon cake, but apparently he's in fact not a very good jeweler, or at least not a particularly discerning one, who is able to be fooled by this glass. But he's not a very good jeweler because the ring got stuck on Kate's finger. All right, we're going to talk about that later. <laughs> Let's finish off the Featheringtons. Can I just say, in my my head canon for Brooks is like he's fourth generation. He never wanted to be um, a jeweler. He wanted to be a baker or just eat cakes professionally and and that. so he just got to take has takes his sugar win where he can and he doesn't really care about the jewelry but because his name is so established he just cruises and we I all love know people that. who do that <laughs> i now love him more <laughs> yes hard same i now have a lot of sympathy for poor brooks he just wanted to be a baker <laughs> and had to be a jeweler instead i mean i guess he's the wrong class to be a baker anyway but yeah <laughs> <laughs> I suppose we should mention that Portia's scheme is to defraud the ton. Sure. I, I, presumably she's going to sell a lot of that jewelry to bring in some money to be able to pay. I can't even remember all the people she hadn't paid. The baker, the baker. Coleman, the um, staff, Genevieve. Yeah. But now what she's saying is let's take investments. We'll take all of the money from the ton invested in the mines. And this is where I think you're quite right, Adele, because once you've, taken that money it is generally expected that you would give something back for that money but I don't feel like she's gotten quite far enough along in the plan for that one I do feel like if she lived for 25 maybe 30 years with a prolific gambler then she would have those fits and spurts of funds so maybe that doesn't even occur to her as having a long-term plan because she's never had any stability if I'm thinking really generously I just think that she would come up with a way, like I have such faith in her ability to scheme it on that she will find a way to make it. She is like the ultimate con woman. You know, she will find a way to make it all work. I just think she's brilliant. She should have her own show. We should spin her off. (laughs) I mean, Polly Walker has been a big win of this show and Lady Featherington doesn't need to be as big of a deal on this as she is. And I think the performance... Uh, and the way she carries a dress is phenomenal. I'm just going to make one little side comment here about the Featheringtons because we have Prudence basically complaining through the whole episode that nobody is looking at her anymore and right on form at several points during the two episodes where she plays, she's like, look at me, look at me. (laughs) Well, I mean, the one time she had something where people would look at her, it's announced at the same time as the diamond of the season. So, yeah, she gets obliterated every single time. Poor Prudence. That, oh, I mean, who hasn't wanted? No, I don't really want people to look at me, but I, I appreciate that in her. So our next area is our big one, and they're all sort of mixed in together. So I feel like we're just going to have to go and see where our night takes us. So first we have the wedding plans, <laughs> and then we have Kate's plans. We have a whole section that I've just called the promenade and then of course we have Kate and Anthony and their continual tension throughout the rest of the episode as well so should we start with the Pretty wedding plans? sex scenes when oh, you have heavy breathing um, my, my pulse rate's just gone up with all the list <laughs> of all of that like seriously 
I'm schwitzing. Right, how about we start with the plans, <laughs> the wedding well, plans? Yeah, because that's where the episode kicks off. Like the episode kicks off with all of the oh, Sharmas and the Bridgertons God. together with the Queen, and the Queen is saying, "I'm going to host your wedding. We're going." Well, actually, <laughs> first the Queen says, "You're not pregnant, are you?" In like <laughs> the nicest possible way. Yes, exactly. And then she says, "In that case, I will host your wedding for you." <laughs> You know what I wrote down, though? I wrote down B-gate, gun-gate, library-gate. <laughs> because you know at that opening bit where she's just there having all those memory flashbacks and I'm just, I wrote down, no wonder she had to fan herself. I'm just like, seriously, these people, what, you know, it's just all the reference. I mean, this is like the reason why, it's, I mean, aside from the obvious why it's the best, but it's like all the things, like it's just got everything you could ever want, all the dicey references you could ever hope for, you know, it's just like, oh, I can barely contain myself. Someone else has to take over this. And he also is just sitting in a bath at different points. Of How the many episode. baths does that man have? Every single moment I is mean, a bath moment. He's calming. I mean, poor valet. But um, oh. he, I guess that's him like fanning himself. I'm fanning myself. If you know what I mean. <laughs> Um, I put down Kate's having hot flashes, the fun kind, not the perimenopausal kind. I don't know which ones are taking over from me right now. <laughs> and like, I mean, that near pinky touch. Oh my god! Oh, what is that? I should not be. What is happening? Hot. Like, whose whose moment was that? It and it's so two good. Darcy references, really, because that's like a reference to the two thousand and five Darcy Lizzie moment. I had three Darcy And they both went to do it and they both missed, even though he's pretending he doesn't want to talk to, like, he's, you know. She looks so vulnerable in this episode. Like, she really is stripped back. Like, the punchy facade at points is gone. It's just looking at him like, what the hell is happening to me? Am I allowed to say something really, like, like really silly? I've just noticed that from this episode onward, her hair is much gentler and softer and nicer. I know that's very, yes. very ridiculous, but it's just, I just thought much, I mean, I'm sure it's totally meant to be, but she just looks so much softer. Her hair, she's got t- tendrils down her face. And from this moment onwards in the season, mm. just nicer, nicer hair. No, you're absolutely right. If you compare it to the first ball in the first episode where it's quite severe and and the wig doesn't look like it's quite right. So, mm. and I think that was actually shot in the first week. So they definitely worked out the hairstyling as it went along um but yeah it's something I think it's something anyone would probably notice when (laughs) people are wearing that many wigs (laughs) and their wig game has gotten stronger since season one for sure absolutely absolutely and let's hope for the best for Penn for next season (laughs) just in talking to how her hair is getting softer and sort of more feminine I also noticed her clothes through this episode as well because we've talked about the Bridgerton blue and how people who are Bridgerton or Bridgerton adjacent wear blue a lot more often. And the Sharmas have always been very pink. Mm. And I thought it was really interesting the way that when she's feeling her feelings and when she is potentially actively considering a possibility of having a relationship with Anthony, she's in blue. But every time it gets pulled back to this concept of duty and her family and everything, she's back in those pink tones again. It was really evident throughout the course of this episode when she was in pink and when she was in blue as to what her emotions and what her thinking was happening at the moment. I hadn't realized that. 
Wow. I didn't know that either. That's amazing. Also, Kate's wearing blue and I'm wearing pink. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Look at Team you Team Sharma. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, Noah, you said that you found three Pride and Prejudice moments. So the first one obviously is when their pinky fingers reach out. That's like, right. Involuntarily, they're just like, I must reach towards you. They can't. And then obviously it's the wet shirt. So that coming oh, out. Yeah. yeah. That's obviously that's wet. 1995. That's the yeah. And then there's the one where, you know, the cake one where they're doing the rings and the cake and he's talking about the weather to her. And she's like, is that what we're going to talk about the weather? There's the scene where I think it's the 2000 and is it the 2005 and where Lizzie says to Darcy in the movie and they're dancing and she's like, what are we going to talk? He starts talking to her about something in name. I think it was the weather. And he says, what would you rather have me talk about? Something along those sorts of lines. So that was my other one that I had. Yeah. No wonder we like them so much. Oh, I was just like, <laughs> oh, my heart, my heart, my heart. <laughs> I mean, they're the, they're the like uber enemies to lovers, right? So like it's, it was, this was super, them. yeah. So this episode was super Pride and Prejudice, was it not? It was just like every single moment was like all the tropes of the exact enemy to lovers that you could pick in this episode. It was on point. Except way more complicated and uh, way more sexy. <laughs> <sighs> I know. All right. So the queen is going to plan the wedding. Edwina is obviously beside herself with joy and happiness. She is smuggy McSmug face through the whole course mm-hmm. of the episode. Obviously completely oblivious to the emotional tensions that are happening in literally every other character in this episode. But, you know, we're happy that Edwina is happy Enjoy your moment. Are we? <laughs> She's not oblivious. She notes that there's Don't something like going it, on. She's yeah. read the room again. She just read it incorrectly. <laughs> yes, sad. She realizes Kate's uncomfortable around Anthony. She just hasn't worked out why. And she, then she keeps misreading that, doesn't she? Willfully mm. or not, we ask you. But, I mean... <laughs> I, I'm a bit more sympathetic towards Edwina than Kate is. I feel like she achieved the thing that she's been working for six years to do is to a guy who's not going to be a scumbag and also has money and has a family that she likes and a future she can envision. Why shouldn't she have a nice wedding? That's probably the one like party she's been waiting for her whole life. I have a question then for you. Is he not a scumbag, though? I mean, not saying that he is a scumbag, but to her, for Edwina, isn't he a scumbag? Because he clearly doesn't want her. He's only marrying her because she was declared the best. He wouldn't otherwise want her. He's choosing her as a trophy. He only wants her because he can't get her because there's barriers in the way. He's picking her because... So in that light, he actually is a scumbag for her. Oh, but she doesn't know. I appreciate every one of those finger ticks you just did. <laughs> um, but she doesn't know any of that. So in her mind, she's, she's a winner. a little bit, you know, not quite all. What is it? She's the- naive. She's and also, like, she hasn't spent much yeah. time around men. Yeah. That's also, dramatic irony, baby. We know it. She doesn't Yeah, know no, it. but she is She is young. I mean, I get that she's super, I mean, obviously super, super, super young and naive. And I mean, and I guess that's all played out in the way, and I, and I, I think I don't like the way that naivety is written with her constantly talking about how she dresses. I find that really irksome because I think you can be naive and not constantly be concerned about, is someone going to like your dress? And I found that I was pretty annoyed with the writing on that. I don't think that has anything to do with the It's character. a bit lazy. They keep going to the very uh, the gendered of trope dumb. of yeah. um, 
Like, you know what? Lots of smart women really give a shit about what they wear. I don't necessarily think that it's about any sense of vanity about her clothes. I think it's very much just, and I agree, it is a bit of a lazy way of showing how she hasn't yet figured out that she can be herself. And the only thing that she thinks about is how are other people perceiving me? Not how does she perceive other people? What does she think about other people? It's very much am I performing the role that I'm supposed to perform of the perfect diamond and asking, you know, do they think they're going to like this dress as if people really think about other people's dresses all that deeply is more just, I think, a symptom of this having no real concept of who she is or that she's allowed to have a place in the world where people don't think that she's perfect. Yeah, I agree because I, she's never been given an opportunity. So she's been, and I mean this in the nicest possible, controlled, lovingly controlled or cajoled by her sister and her mother to be this perfect daughter or hold this role of responsibility to marry well, you know, to be the diamond. Essentially, she's raised to be the diamond. She succeeded in that. She doesn't really have an identity other than that. She's never been given a choice other than that. And this is sort of embodied in the script writers as, look, do I look good enough? Is it okay? And then later on, to skip slightly ahead, I think in this episode anyway, is to for her, her way of then throwing those shackles off seems to be, I'm a grown up woman. I just, to me, that the, do I look, do you think they'll like this dress to I'm a grown up woman just, just is not quite the leap I'd expect her to make. You know, there's a lot more in that. I think if they'd sort of taken the route of feeling a little bit overwhelmed or worried about the role of this Viscountess and having everyone look at her in that, like maybe a way more prominent role than they had sort of aimed for could have been a bit more interesting. Um, But I think it's also interesting that the dress is so plain, not just white, but plain. (laughs) If you think about the dresses the Shamans have been wearing, they have used from what I understand, much sort of more Indian fabrics with the traditional style. And then the white wedding dress is very, very plain, simple, elegant, whatever, um, but unadorned, um, stripped back a bit like, I guess, her personality at oh, this point. <laughs> also anachronistic, um, brides didn't wear white until after Queen Victoria, but that's all right. This is, this is my role in this yeah. podcast is just to tell you the research fact I've check, done. No, I like it. Fact <laughs> check. But I think that's also interesting because then that brings in, you know, so her concept of acceptability and properness goes back to colonial notions of colonialism and what is going to be acceptable okay. in a Regency England, England type framework as opposed to then what you would say would be her, I mean, and this is, a, I mean, air quoting original cultural background which if you look at what they're bringing in as a cultural trope anyway is such a from what i understand a mishmash of indian cultural identifying bits that's from all over the place and eras that if you were to look at it you know from a cultural viewpoint it's kind of funny and ludicrous and weird but that's fine that's is what it is but like to say that is this the right look of beauty from your a colonial perspective or from a ruling class perspective or from an Anglo perspective is then another sort of interesting question for her to be asking then in that particular environment. It's never mm-hmm. what can I bring or what oh. am I bringing to this place or this relationship is very much am I acceptable to the people who are here and I think okay Adele's right I am a bit harsh on Edwina 
but I do feel a lot of sympathy for her as well for occupying this place where she has no concept of her own value as a person outside of being the perfect diamond at all times. Does she not sort of then represent the woman, like the normal standard, perfect English rose, any everyday woman of that social standing then? Because that woman would never have an opportunity necessarily then to speak her mind or to be anything other than the viewing of the outside other of the male gaze. And so therefore she represents that perfectly. She is the perfect embodiment of every male fantasy, of every male gaze, of every male ideal, of the perfect Viscountess, exactly what Antony's looking for. Kate is not that. And I think, you know, viewers can look at Edwina as the roadblock for Kate and Anthony being together. What you have to also think about is how unhappy that girl is going to be if things progress the way that they're going to or that that is agreed to by the end of the episode, which is she will marry Anthony, he will want her sister, and he will grow probably increasingly resentful of her and her perfectness for not being what she was never allowed to be, which is a version of herself or like like Kate. I mean, that's pretty awful fate. And then probably we'll never see her sister again because her sister's not coming back if that happens. I think we see that stress with Anthony as well. At least I recognised it as a fellow oldest child in <laughs> his complete desire to control every single detail and be so organized so that nothing could go wrong and I I saw Anthony in that moment I felt seen in that moment it's clear that he himself is struggling with a little bit of stress and tension as well and I think he handled that exactly what you're talking about in terms of what Edwina will suffer he articulated that what I don't understand is how Kate can't see that or you know would have let that go irrespective of Edwina's pleas, how she could not see the torture that she will put her own sister under and persist in this farce. This this kills me, kills me, kills me. But I mean, her point is that she is going to leave the situation. And she, I think she genuinely believes that once she is out of there, it's not going to be a thing anymore and she's removing herself from the situation completely and for all that Kate schemes and we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves we're going to have to go back in a second every single thing that she does she does out of love for Edwina and I I don't think that anyone can argue that she's doing all of the right things all of the time but everything that she's doing is with this bottom line of Edwina and Mary being safe And at this point, the safest thing for her is to be married to the Viscount because, you know, if it breaks up, as Lady Danbury points out, there will be an enormous scandal. Edwina might not recover. They might not be safe, particularly when Edwina has this outburst where she talks about how much she loves Antony and how much this is the life that she wants. I think that Kate is running completely on adrenaline here and I understood where she was like, it's fine. We're going to go right back to how we were. None of this is going to make any difference. I'm going to leave. You're going to be happy. Edwina's going to be safe. You know, it's almost running purely on id, I suppose, at this particular mm. point. So I don't know. That's how I read it. Mm. I can't. I, I do wonder if Edwina's just trying to convince herself that this is all good because she has really has no choices. <laughs> like trying to convince yourself it's, it is what you want when you know you have to do it. 
We don't really know how Kate feels about the Anthony situation other than what she says to him because she doesn't have a confidant, unfortunately, <laughs> to talk through some of this stuff when we don't have the insight into her mind that we would have in, in, in her thoughts as we would in the book. Maybe she just thinks that it's lust that he's feeling for her and she's feeling for him. But Edwina used the word love, and that's the only person that's used the word love. Mm. So that preferences over, you know, having some sweaty loins. When are we going to go back to what was said after the dinner? First of all, the only thing I want to say is I have a genuine question as to whether anybody has ever tried on someone else's engagement ring without it getting stuck. Well, why would anyone try on someone else's engagement ring full stop? Right. They say I've never done that. It happens so often, though. Yeah. I mean, I try on friends' rings. Like, oh, I'll try this on, see how it looks good. Sure. <laughs> and yes, it's gotten stuck all the time. I kind of found myself resenting the tone that I added to the end of that scene. Like, I didn't think it was necessary. No, it was um, nice I guess they were trying to say that, like, the ring wanted to stay with her. <laughs> Yes, they were. And then it was played for laughs as well. And I'm like, like this isn't like playing super funny. Like it just, it felt totally a little bit off to me, but, uh, you know, I'm critical. But also <laughs> wasn't her, was it her mother? Her mother was like a bit narky about that whole thing, kind of like, Kate, we're here now. And then again, Kate, like it was all a bit sort of like, you're taking your time as if she's not. And I was kind of going, stick your finger in your mouth, sweetheart, and suck that thing off. That'll teach everyone in this room how to get that ring off. <laughs> oh, if the thigh set him off, a finger sucking <laughs> scene would be a lot. He would have like spontaneously combusted. Like it would not have been okay. Um, no, I just thought because it's like it Simon happened- and the Spoon. <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's- it happened in my best friend's wedding. It happened in the family stone, and then it happened here. And I'm sure there are other examples, yeah. but I just thought. Every time, every time the engagement ring gets stuck, like everybody around the world, don't try on someone else's engagement ring. It's guaranteed to land you in a terrible position. When she tried it on, he could not look away from it on her hand. And then at one point he went from her, I I love everything Jonathan Bailey does, but um, he traces the ring up to her face and then he does not stop looking at her. Like, and um, it's just... It's so romantic. That was his moment of awareness sort of in a way, wasn't it? That was like, so the one thing that scene was good for, aside from the cake issue, was the moment of his conscious awakening. So that when he put the ring on her finger, he traced it with his finger. And then as you say, with his eyes traced back up to her face. To me, that was him consciously going, I see it now. I feel it now. I'm there. Anthony has his moment of reaction, I suppose, or, or I think... Potentially even moving. Um, I liked what you said, Adele, about how Edwina brought love into the conversation for the very first time. But I think that might have been the moment where Anthony realized this is more than just wanting to bang it out. Like there are actual feelings involved here. Clearly he had some chest feelings as well as some pants feelings when Kate put on the ring. <laughs> but then he takes Edwina off for a promenade and Lady Danbury, I, who I I just don't understand what she's doing in this episode, but she's like, Kate, come with me. Yes, so insistent too, right? You must come on this promenade and be with us and walk down this way and be shown off. Like, why does she have to be there? I don't understand. But it gives us an opportunity for Kate to be, what's that guy's name again? Thomas Dorset. 
Dorset. Well, which gives us an opportunity to yet again set off some fire with Anthony, right? I love him in feral mode. When he's in feral mode, which he is again in this episode, there's the point when he's looking at her with a ring on, he look, does look like he wants to inhale her. And again, when she's with Dorset and she's smiling and laughing and he has only had her, I think, laugh with him a little bit in the mud pond. So he's both envisioning what it could be to be him, but he's also envisioning what it could be to see her with someone else the rest yes. of his life as well, I feel like. Yeah, he's definitely vibrating at an incredibly high frequency on this promenade. And yeah. Violet's like, what the hell's going on? <laughs> well, and I think it was an interesting journey into what could potentially be there for Kate if Anthony and Edwina did get married. Because, you know, Thomas is there and he's listening to her and he respects her and he wants to go to India. And he has a trade himself. Like, clearly, he's a doctor and he's interested mm-hmm. in medicine if she takes up teaching, then there's safety in that too. There's a safe middle-class existence that they could have. And I think it opens up possibilities for Kate that she potentially didn't have hope for anymore. And that potential might also lead to why she tries to keep Edwina and Anthony together is because she's like, okay, well, I might not have this big passion in my life, but I can have that. And that is not necessarily a bad thing to have as well. And also he's, I mean, he's got such a great sense of humor and also doesn't like Anthony comes in all caveman. Mm. Like you can't tie a knot. I'm oh, going to push easy. you out of the way. And he's like, what, look, whatever, man. Like, okay. That <laughs> was fine. weird though. That was weird. I found that whole dismissal of him super strange. Away. Like the, the fact that Anthony comes in and goes, you can't tie this knot. And it takes over letting Kate out of the boat. Like that was just super, that whole bit was really strange to me. And I found the fact that Dorset then just sort of disappears, you know, aside from falling into the water. I found that whole thing really oddly played out. That felt just a bit awkward to me. And I didn't really understand where Anthony was at. Yeah. He'd been ignoring her at the start of this episode and he started ignoring her at the start of the ring scene. And I mean, I guess we can say like he's just gone into id mode, like mine. But like it's so like open and seen. And Edwina's right there. His mother's right there. Um, and no one cared about what happened to Newton. Was Newton okay? Right. Did Newton end up in the lake? I think he was right. okay, right? We just heard a squeal. It was done. Is Newton a bit like a wombat? Like they will always come out the victor because they're so solid. <laughs> Don't mess with Corgi. <laughs> um, as part of my research, because I am nothing if not a completionist, I did find out that the costume designers worked very hard to find the exact white fabric for that shirt to provide the maximum effect of wetness. It wasn't just the wetness, though. It was the tearing off of layers that was very attractive before we even got to see the flesh through the shirt. It was an upgrade on Colin Firth. I needed more. And the shamans were lusty. A lusty, but I needed more. I needed him to get out of that water. I needed him to push his chest up so we could see more of the full frontage. I was a bit disappointed. I was a bit like, hello, camera, don't go away just yet. (laughs) (laughs) 
but it's not ladylike to stare. No, I no, I wasn't. Me. I wasn't staring. Trust me. <laughs> He's so pissed off. He's not even noticing that both of those women are looking at him. Yeah, that was like feral eyes oh. themselves. He'd lost control of his dignity, even if he didn't realize that he was also giving at the same time. So. Yeah. The other thing I think that's probably important to mention in this promenade, which um, doesn't actually come back in this episode at all, is that we do see Will and Alice come back. They talk about the club that Will has opened up thanks to the money that he made by throwing the fight at the end of last season. Um, and Alice is dragging him out to try and meet the kind of gentleman that mm-hmm. might come and frequent his club. Did Will never consider that he would actually have to be active in finding people to come to his club? Like Mm -hmm. Alice is like the pragmatist, like, but Will, like you need to market your offer. You need to use your networks, dude. Like, No, see, this is the, you like, these are, there are two kinds of people, right? They're the people who think that if you build a good enough product, people will just come to you. And then they're the people who are like, no, actually you have to go to where the people are. And Will is the one and Alice is the other, which is why they work so well as a couple. Yeah. Love Alice. Which I think brings us to the Sheffield dinner. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can we talk about getting Anthony Stewart head to appear in an episode <laughs> and barely giving him any lines. I'm talking about uh, Lord Sheffield. You know him from lots of different things. Uh, he was Giles in Buffy. He was Giles in Buffy. He, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's also in um, Ted Lasso as Rebecca's horrific ex-husband and he plays it magnificently. But I really think we see, like, the wife taking the uh, horrible role in this. Not that he's great, but uh, Lady Sharma. I feel like he's living his best villain life after playing Giles for so long and having to (laughs) play the nice guy because certainly – in Ted Lasso, he's horrific. It's funny, actually, because I, I, I remembered before rewatching this episode for this recording that he had been horrible, but he doesn't really take the lead on the horribleness. No, no, he doesn't. Not till the very end. It is all Lady Sharma. What a horrible woman. It's been, obviously, how old is Edwina supposed to be? Like 19, 20 years? So it's been more than that. And the woman cannot let things go. Like, at least her husband's aware that, like, it's not appropriate to be sharing some of that. Not dinner time conversation. Whereas she's, like, looking for any opportunity to get more people on her side to dunk on her daughter. And I'm like, what do you think that's going to do for your relationship with your granddaughter? Like, she's, she's just, she's quite awful. I have the tiniest spark of admiration for somebody who's capable of holding a grudge for that long. Like the amount of (laughs) energy that it takes to be that angry for that long is like some top tier grudge holding. Like that's impressive. Oh yeah. Look, I'll be honest. I actually, I can, I can imagine my mother holding a grudge for that long. So I think it can happen. I, and I, and I can also imagine my mother bringing something like that up at a dinner conversation. So it didn't ring untrue to me, I'll be honest with you. You know what? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, my mother would say right. Lady Sharma should be careful about bringing up things that's going to bring further shame on her family. Bringing up that conversation, I would have thought, would have made her situation more untenable. She's just found favor again with the queen. Why would she bring something upon herself and her family, which could again put her out of favor? Surely she and should in just in front of Danbury. In, in front of Danbury and Violet, who are considered to be quite of well standing in the community, and Anthony, obviously. Yeah. I mean, she's putting herself at risk. 
Yeah, exactly. It, it makes absolutely no practical sense whatsoever. They, you know, they were shunned from society. They're welcomed back in to the Bridgertons, no less, who are one of the most powerful families and to a wedding that's being run by the queen. And she's like, you know what? Let me drag up all of my family's dirty laundry instead of just hiding it under the carpet like any sensible woman would do. Yeah, strategically, it was a real misfire. I, I was sitting there listening <laughs> to that going, I don't know I would have played that card. It was quite venomous. Yes, and really intensely. But the first 500 times I watched this episode... I thought to myself, you know, Anthony, good on you. This is really standing up, doing the whole thing. Recently, I watched it and I thought, Anthony's defense of that family is all about Kate and all about him. I just didn't pick it the first gazillion times, but the last time I really picked it. And again, poor Edwina missing it. He kicks off once Kate's maligned. Yeah. And also I caught out the corner of my eye. You know, it's Kate who's throwing down the napkins. She's off screen. Kate who's about to get up off the table. You know, it's all those sorts of, but it was sort of at the the last few times, I'm just sort of like, yeah, it's really Kate's anger that's riling him up. I wonder if she were, and again, the air quotes, better behaved, you know, if she were raised to be silent like Edwina was, would he have had the same courage? Would he have had the same ability to speak up and actually say, what needed to be said? Or was it because he was able to physically see the reaction of injustice in front of him because she was sitting across from him that would actually inspired him to action? I think they're both their family's protectors. And this is the first time someone's protected her. So I would like to think he would have noticed anyway, because he does seem to be, very, they're very in tune with each other um, and they are kind of mirrors of each other. So he couldn't look away from her the whole dinner. <laughs> He can't help himself. So, yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. That was, I love that. I, I Like, he's so hot. <laughs> like, is there anything hotter than a guy saying, do not treat my whatever with disrespect? Yeah. Like, like, it actually isn't good form what he did either, like, to throw them out. Um, he's disinvited them from the wedding. I love all of that. I love that. It. It's not necessarily good societal form for him either. But it was justified. What he did was well justified. You know what I mean? Like, so it looked good for him to do that. I thought that was really powerful. Yeah. But then you see Violet go into bit protect mode as well for Anthony, which is really good too because, like, he's probably never got that and he will never see that either. But um, it was all about who you cared for the most, who was your preference in that room. And poor Edwina, (laughs) not there. Because Kate ran after Anthony. Not Edwina. Interesting, right? To save Edwina, but yes. Well. She ran after Anthony. Yeah, but she was the one who ran after. Like Edwina could have run after him and she didn't. And interestingly enough, to your point earlier, this is where Anthony has his out. So this is where Anthony can finally turn around and think, ah, if I get out of this marriage now, I can kind of be free. Like this is now the moment where mom has said to me, if the bride-to-be if my engage, my fiance says I'm out, she wants out, I'm free. And like manna from heaven, it has been provided. Like who would have thought? And I want her. Yeah. We kind of actually skipped over the two mum chats because there were two mum chats right before the dinner. And you're right because Violet goes to Anthony and says, you don't have to do this. And Anthony is like, of course I do, my honour. And Violet's like, no, baby, there's an out. Like, 
we can make this happen. You don't have to do this. And then she plays the dad card, which was an interesting choice for her, particularly in light of the flashbacks in the last episode. But we also have Kate and Mary talking as well. And there's a lot of similarities between Mary's choices and Kate's choices here in the sense that Mary had to choose between her family and her heart. I think she put it exactly that way. And she chooses her heart. But this whole episode is Kate choosing between her heart and her family. And literally everybody in her life is pushing her towards choosing her family instead. Interesting. It's so true. And every time Kate looks towards her heart, she's been pulled the other direction. Even when she is one step closer to choosing her heart, she's just like, no, I cannot do it. I cannot do it. It's just painful to watch. The other thing that we hear about at this dinner is Kate's scheme. So we've learned about it from Lady Danbury's conversations. It's been alluded to, we sort of sidled up to it, but we never really understood that Kate had, I was going to say Kate had emailed. Kate did not email the Sheffields. (laughs) Kate wrote to the Sheffields a proper letter with a pen and paper. And they came back to her and said, if Edwina marries a proper British man of good standing, then she will inherit the Sheffield's wealth. So not only is marrying Antony providing Edwina with a comfortable future going forward and safety in that sense, but it's also providing her with the safety of her own money as well. Whether Kate should have told Edwina and Mary about this is probably a little bit obvious at this particular point, but obviously she made the choices that she had for the reasons that she did. And now, of course, it's all out on the table and she looks underhanded. Certainly she's hurt her family in this regard as well because she's bargained with the people who cast Mary out and have essentially shunned her and Edwina for their whole lives as well. So big reveal. This was the whole catalyst of training Edwina for six years. She didn't really have any options though, right? Except for telling... They couldn't just roll the dice on marrying well, like... Because this could would also give sister. Edwina... If, yeah, I, I, look, I think she had to take the deal, though. Yeah, but she, couldn't she tell Mary and Edwina that this is the deal, or even, you know, this is the deal, this is the reasons why we're going to do it, and let's just let's just go for it? I think Mary definitely needed to know. I think yeah. Edwina should have as well, but it, Mary doesn't make sense. It's kind of treating... Mary like a child right or maybe she was fearful Mary would just be like no because I haven't seen my parents since they (laughs) tossed me out but as soon as her father died Kate went into family mode in a way that Anthony does too which is I know best get out of the way (laughs) we're gonna like come with me I'll tug you all the way to the shoreline and she has tried to tell Edwina twice and she's been interrupted by Anthony and then uh, Danbury I understand why she didn't tell Edwina because, I mean, obviously that's a ton of pressure and Edwina's already under the pressure of having to be perfect and catch a husband. To add this would have been a lot of pressure and I feel like Kate, for what could be considered quite valid reasons, feels quite capable of shouldering this kind of pressure and she doesn't trust that Edwina Mm -hmm. can shoulder that kind of pressure as well. I think you're probably right, Adele, that she didn't tell Mary because Mary would have shut it down because she is aware of her parents being actual terrible human beings. Well, that there would be more conditions, right? It's not just like we'll wait you out till you die. Like it was, there would always be conditions as soon as they were in play. So it's, 
it's like once you take a, you know, do the blackmail continues. Yeah, it's the deal with the devil. It's the strings. But don't you think once they were there in England and the game was in play, she should have told her mother. Now we're here. The engagement's done. By the way, actually, this is the deal I did with the devil. We're nearly there at the gate. Let's just see it through. You know, I just sort of feel that that was the moment that should have been mentioned. Agreed. Obviously, Kate's schemes have provided Antony with yes. a reason to call off the engagement. Oh, happy birthday. I thought it was really interesting that Anthony's idea for calling off the engagement is, I'll call off the engagement and never look at either of you ever again, as opposed to, I will call off the engagement and marry you instead. Instead, he's like, nope, we are, we are putting a big old wall You'll between never me see and the each other. Yeah, exactly. But for somebody who doesn't want to see her again, he says some things that seem to contradict that. I think we all just need to take a deep breath for a second. (laughs) Kate and Anthony both think by removing people from their sphere that it's going to solve things, which does tend to indicate they both think it's a lust thing. Um, oh, but that but those yeah, words. his when, words. When, but when no, but even just that first part when he says the, the bit even before the words. Okay, just when he says, and that's not far enough. Like, just I died then. I died then. And that's, there's nowhere in the world that is far, world far enough far to enough. end this torment. Yeah, that that I just died then. Like, I was. Oh, I can't even continue. <laughs> I mean, we've hung a lot of shit on the writers for this episode, but this scene with their declarations to each other, it's poetry. It's actual poetry. It is so beautiful and so emotional. And I, you know, the, God, I just love when they bump noses and they breathe (sighs) each other in. And everything about this is exactly that kind of emotional resonance that make that chemistry between them works so well. It's the pacing, isn't it? It's the pacing of the phrases. I mean, that's the way of the, you are the bane of my existence. Pause, camera, over the other shoulder, and the object of all my desires. The theatre training was coming out like a pro on this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, it's so hot. It's beautiful. It's worth the wait, you know? And if ever and there was a moment and there were a few moments where I'm like, I'm sick of your googly eyes. I was just all back in. Like, Google away, guys. Like, this is fine. Like, and the, and the nut- intensity of that oh. connection too. And can I just say that bit where he, like, they're right there and their mouths are right at the, and then he pulls away and he starts shaking his head. I just was about to pass out i just can't just even thinking about it my glasses are fogging up (laughs) you can't see us obviously podcasting being an audio but like the three of us right now our hands are in the air we're i'm going quite red on same here oh look it's just it's a perfect scene honestly it is a perfect scene and everything that is irritating about all of the rest of the episodes forgiven 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 in this moment because they do it (laughs) so well and yeah it's the best of the season (laughs) (laughs) and they've committed themselves to a future of longing and pain yeah 
Like seriously, and no matter what they do. that's the best and simple solution. <laughs> no matter what you do in your life after that for those two, they can just think back on that moment and just that's enough. That's the high point of their life right there. <laughs> yeah, it's gorgeous. Um, so the next time that we see Anthony and Kate together is actually the last scene of this episode. They are continuing or I suppose continuing as they began meeting each other on horseback Kate is back in pink again because she you know after Edwina tells her that she loves Antony you know she's back all in on duty and Antony tells her you know I can't sleep I'm gonna break it off with your sister it'll be fine we'll never see each other again and she begs like she absolutely begs him to marry Edwina to go ahead with the engagement, to go ahead with their lives and that she will stay out of it, that it's too important for her to get in the middle of, that they'll get over their feelings. Like, I mean, the scene between her and Anthony is just chest fillingly emotional. And then this almost turns that on its head because you have that same huge emotions, but it's, there's just so much pain in it uh, without any kind of promise of release. And the music underneath is an instrumental version of You Ought to Know. So Yes, I noticed that. I didn't like it. No. It was weird, right? It was well, super like, weird. <laughs> I don't I Like even obviously as a Canadian who is very <laughs> fond of a little bit of CanCon in the world, <laughs> I can't get behind this either. It seems like a very strange choice. Yeah, for, it was really um, strange. Yeah. It's interesting that there was not a plan to meet that they had hoped that they, they knew each other's routine, that they would hope to intersect. That was another Austin moment that I just remember that, you know, that's another, you know, where Darcy and Lizzie just happened to accidentally on purpose meet when he's looking to give her the letters. The other thing is Edwina saying she loved him change things for Kate. She's kind of almost been trying to talk Edwina out. This might not be the best situation. And then she's sort of, kicked in with that and I think that's the drive now she thinks not only is Anthony's stability it's fulfilling everything Edwina needs to be happy and he, he does it to make her happy even though yeah. he's committing himself to a, a marriage that's mm. gonna suck there's guilt there though do you think like she's yeah. she feels so guilty about what she and Anthony are doing behind Edwina's back that she's willing to do almost anything she possibly can to alleviate that guilt and make sure that Edwina gets what she wants and then yeah as you say Anthony does it to make her happy I totally agree with what you're both saying like I think she's doing it to make her sister happy but I just was I mean again it's just she's scared she's super scared she's scared of her own feelings she's scared of actually she's been a woman who has sort of had her own agency and she's scared of now being able to, what, what she would do with it. So she can't, this is her one moment. This is a shining opportunity for her to take her agency and do something with it. And she doesn't quite know what to do with that voice. So rather than use it, she, she shrinks back into it and just apologizes and hopes for the best and feels terrible. She says it will pass and he shakes his head because at this point he knows better. He knows better. She's in denial. Um, he knows it's something different. And she's so pleased when he agrees with her and then so devastated once he's um, out of sight. Because she knows too. 
It's heartbreaking. I actually got a little bit of emotion. <laughs> even with even with the background music, it was really sad. It still managed the emotion even with that music. And the bad writing CGI. <laughs> anyway. All right. What a what an episode. What an episode. Oh, what an episode. All yeah. right. It's time for What Would Damry Do? This is where we imagine that Lady Danbury, our fearless, frank-talking friend, receives an urgent missive from a character from another book in desperate need of counsel. This episode's letter comes from Crystal Chen in Amy Lee's Set on You. Dear Lady Danbury, I've harnessed my power. I've been battered around a bit, my latest breakup being the most recent, but I've always found positivity and joy in the gym. Until Scott, a gym bro, or I think he's a gym bro, started stealing my equipment. He gets on my last nerve and everything about him rankles me. I can't stand him. But the more that I fight with him, the more that I feel I understand him. What would Danbury do? I have questions. Mm -hmm. When he steals her equipment deliberately or he just happens to be in her way, like is he trying to get her attention? Or is he just happened to be using similar machinery? Yeah, it's not deliberate. She's just being a bit possessive. Also, it's a gym. But, I mean, he's also a gym bro, so y- you would assume <laughs> the worst. <laughs> but, yeah, I think it's just shared equipment where you think something is on it, so it's yours, but that's not how the world works. If you've ever been on holiday with a sun lounger, a towel does not make it safe. <laughs> <laughs> Wars have been fought over sound lounges. Anyway, but she's also a plus-sized lady in a gym, so I think assuming the worst is probably right on. (laughs) She's primed for confrontation is what you're saying. Interesting. She's also a fitness influencer, so she's on Instagram all the time. So I think she has a world that can be quite combative. All right, so here's our situation. We have a woman who historically would not have been welcomed in gyms, out there changing the world through her Instagram influencing, showing the world that everybody can be healthy and that exercise is for everybody. And then we have a gym bro, an, an alleged gym bro, getting mm-hmm. in her way, taking her machines, keeping her from doing the things that she needs to do. But let's just say stereotypes work both ways. But her anger is not pure, is what I'm hearing. There is complication. Oh, no, to she, anger. She, she's like, Kate and Anthony level shirty might be a little dusty as well. (laughs) I mean, they're not smelling each other in the gym. I wouldn't advise that to anybody, but, uh, you know, sometimes if enemies to lovers is respectful and not abusive, it can be really, really hot. And you might find yourself with your loins ahead of your brain and heart. But yeah, let's just say Scott might not be all that he seems either. I feel like it's not the most exciting of advice. Has she considered talking to him? I'm just putting it out there as a thought. You know what? I think she hates him so much. That's not an option (laughs) at the beginning. (laughs) I'm just saying, like, if somebody steals your machine or whatever, like, you can say, I'm sorry, I was next on this. And then what happens? I mean, absolutely. There is a human level way to uh, approach this. I, I definitely think communication is vital to any relationship. 
and you can't really understand anyone if you haven't tried to get to know them. But yeah, I think that's the thing. It's, uh, I guess it is a bit of pride and prejudice, right? You make a lot of assumptions and judgments of people based on the bits of information you can pass visually. Um, we all do it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not great. <laughs> I think there's lots of reasons why she would feel that way, but maybe just maybe <laughs> she gets over that. No, do you have anything to weigh in with? Well, I've got a, I've got a question. Am I allowed to ask? I'm wondering that maybe he pretends that he's against, like not into her, but secretly very into her. And maybe a piece of advice could be that mm. um, that she embraces that and leads into that possibility and in the Danbury way throws a ball or a party <laughs> and brings everyone in. Yeah, so it could be like a she could do like an Insta live with him and brings him into her circle. Ooh. Yes, and then they could be besties and start doing, you know, regular spots together. And then that could break down the barriers. And then we could see a little bit of, you know, sweat action. So get in his way then. Like she could literally start getting in his space. We could see if there's a bit of a collab. (laughs) (laughs) If communication doesn't work, I like this idea a lot. (laughs) Um, Adele, why did you choose this book for us? Okay, so... Crystal is a woman of colour who is an influencer in the fitness realm and, and then Scott is, he is a bit, he's smug. So you can see why I chose a lot of these people. Um, and he routinely steals her favourite squat rack. So it's big stakes. It's, it's not marrying your sister. But they're, like, super competitive and, um, they're, you know, there's lots of jabs back and forth and they do run into each other at a, an engagement party. So it felt very appropriate and, you know, they do just have the hots for each other, but they do come together. I didn't mean to say that. Um, <laughs> Lucky them. <laughs> over, like, all the things that they have in common, like family and friends. And so it felt very appropriate to choose Set On You. Um in line with this uh, episode, even though uh, Anthony and Kate have not yet come together. <laughs> we only oh live in home. I meant that one. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Well, no, that's good. Not that's sorry. a perfect, perfect note to end on. Thanks for joining us for episode five. We'll be back in a fortnight with Bridgerton on Netflix, season two, episode six. Please hit subscribe so you never miss an episode given our sometimes erratic schedule, as well as our bonus episodes where we chat with some fascinating people about different aspects of the Bridgerton verse. Thank you to our fantastic guest host, Noe Harcel. Noe, where can people find you if they want to hear more from you? Thank you. You can find me on Instagram at Noe Harcel or on Twitter at Noe Harcel or my website, noeharcel.com. Our editor is Ben McKenzie of Splendid Chaps Productions. You can find them at splendidchaps.com. In the meantime, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Bridgerton Pod and Instagram as at WWDDPod or send us an email at BridgertonPod at gmail.com. This episode was recorded and edited on the traditional and unceded land of the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung people. Thanks for listening and remember WWDD. <laughs>